0: Welcome to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. This is episode 11. I'm here with co-host Austin Zamhariri. Our guest this week is candidate for attorney general, Joe Jaworski. How are you doing, Joe?
1: Hey, Jesse, I'm great. Austin, thanks for having me.
0: Quite the discussion we had of the, the close miss, I guess, or almost miss, the Texas OU game.
1: Well, I mean, it was obviously a heavy, high-scoring game, so in that regard, it was a lot of entertainment. But uh, uh, Texas is having a habit of coming out strong and then getting gassed near the end. And, uh, but, it, you know, being in the Cotton Bowl is always exhilarating.
0: Well, we're glad to have you here this week. Want to hit the ground running? We'll start talking about some of the, the priorities you have here in the state of Texas as you run for Attorney General. You're talking about creating a a general civil rights division protecting the civil rights of all of Texans that lets you expand on that.
1: Oh yeah. Be my pleasure. Well, it's remarkable to consider that presently the Texas attorney general's office, I mean, forget what party anyone's in. They don't have a civil rights division and we understand civil rights are always uh, under attack. Uh, It's, it's part of American existence that Um, people have complaints regarding their civil rights, whether it's gender or race. And, you know, equality is something we strive for in America and we oftentimes come up short. But, you know, that's the whole nature of, you know, making it a more perfect union. And um, it'd be one thing, Jesse, if Texas were like sort of simpatico with the United States Department of Justice, but as we know, they are not. And so it would even be more important, I think, for there to be a local version of that. Uh, So one of my pledges, as you refer to, is when I'm elected and I take the oath of office, there will be on day one a civil rights division. Uh, The last time we had one was the last time we had a Democrat. So, you know, I don't know why the GOP doesn't consider that important, but uh, it will be under my administration. There seems
0: to be, and it just came to my mind because I was watching Dave Chappelle's The Closer the other day and a big discussion has become about trans rights. And our Supreme Court It has even said it's like LGBTQ rights are the same as everybody else's rights. But it seems to be in Texas, Texas is still one of those states that when it comes to that civil rights defense of you can't hit me, you can't, you can't beat on me for that reason, we're one of those states that ignores that.
1: Yeah, I mean, fortunately, there is, you know, uh, all sorts of nonprofit uh, legal aid groups that will assert a cause of action. But, you know, why should it be that way? I mean, why should it be that we're always fighting our government to do the right thing? Why can't it be the government with the you know great weight of moral authority that a government has be on the right side of these things? Be the good guy for once. Um, why can't you be able to call your government to say, hey, my civil rights? are being trod upon. Well, in Texas, unfortunately, it's usually the government doing it. In this case, the legislature. Very painful. So that's just something we need to work on and we can do a lot better.
0: I would definitely agree. That was something something that I had seen during the legislature. I went to a criminal justice hearing committee and spoke on the death penalty. And it was primarily we had a bill in front of us. It's like we have people who are intelligence disabled that we're facing death penalty charges and our states had to been told multiple times, you can't do that. And it's like, why is our legislature ignoring this? Why do we have an office, a legal office that ignores this? So I'm glad that that's something you, you bring to the forefront to, to bring attention to, because those are serious issues.
1: Well, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that the Texas attorney general's office seems to be on, you know, the side of someone other than the people, you know, it seems to be more about protecting a bias or protecting um, a, a, a position that will appeal to a certain electorate rather than doing the job, which is to serve the people, uh, to, to be a consumer protection agency, to be a civil rights division, uh, and to simply serve the people of Texas and look for opportunities as an attorney general to be nonpartisan or bipartisan. In other words a consumer protection issue might be um, presenting the position of the people against private health insurance. Well, we, we like private health insurance, but we don't like it when they decline coverage after accepting our premiums. You know, I mean, I'm all for businesses making a profit in America. You know, we are a capitalist society. You work hard, make more money, you know, live better is the, is the ideal at least. But When these health insurance companies are making billions and billions in profits while telling licensed Texas physicians, sorry, doc, we're not going to cover that. Even though you've gone to medical school and done a residency and an internship and practiced for 30 years and you're an expert at what you do, we're going to decline your request to treat your patient the way you propose. Find another way because we don't want to pay for it. Well, there needs to be an attorney general that pushes back against that.
0: And we were, we had a discussion as we were getting ready for this, me and you were, and and it kind of leads about with cannabis, because that's what our focus is, is that speaking of like the the government telling doctors in Texas, it's like, yeah, you may have went to school, you may know the studies and you've read through them, but we're going to tell you, you know, we're not really, we're not really fond of you telling your patients they could use this substance, despite you've shown us all this evidence, they
1: could work, but And and, and, you know, to me, people are fluid uh, where they like to live. And, you know, we all know people uh, are moving to Texas uh, often uh, from states where cannabis has been legal. So, you know, it's not a wild proposition uh, that people in Texas have seen the other side. Um, You know what I do for a living, uh, Jesse, when I'm not, you know, putting on the candidate cape and uh, campaigning is I'm a mediator. Uh, 31-year licensed Texas attorney. I've been a trial lawyer my entire career and have put those skills learned in the courtroom and, you know, in litigation to helping people settle their personal injury lawsuits. Specifically, um, I mediate what's called Defense Base Act cases. These are the uh, injury claims brought by former veterans. Well, I guess they're veterans the former military, now veterans, who are working as military contractors. Um, And they're not necessarily people that carry guns. I mean, they could be Afghani interpreters. They could be uh, diesel mechanics working on machines in Afghanistan. Well, anyway, they get PTSD. They get hurt. They have chronic pain. They come home. They live in all 50 states. And I've been all around. And especially in the states where cannabis is legal, they speak, these veterans, glowingly about the benefits of cannabis from a medicinal standpoint, uh, from a PTSD standpoint? And how about cancer patients? And how about, you know, chronic pain patients? And what we're leaving them with here in Texas is just take more pills. That's legal. Just don't kill yourself, you know? And so if a doctor thinks it's better to use cannabis, well, I I side with the doctor. And, and that's the case in Oklahoma. That's the case in New Mexico, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, just all these states that border us, but not us you know, and, and we're so lucky just to get, what is it now? 0.5. What a 1%. Yeah. 1% up, up from 0. 0.5. And, and yet everyone knows that the proper dose is 5.0 and uh, you know, so we're still way behind on that. And it would, it would be nice if Texas, you know, the second largest in population and, you know, just a great influence or it would be great if we got with, with the program. What do you think,
2: um, if you were elected attorney general, uh, how would you how would you lead on this issue to progress this this moving forward? Right. Uh,
1: well, I've already started uh, as a campaigner. Um, so let's hearken back to 1972 when um, John Hill uh, was running for Texas attorney general. Now, you know, we can't be legislators. We're candidates for the statewide Constitutional executive office of Attorney General, but going around statewide, you have a bully pulpit, you have a a platform, and when you win, as John Hill did, uh, he had a right to say, "Well, it must have been something I said." And one of the things he advocated for was a consumer protection law that didn't exist uh, at the time, where you could sue someone who defrauded you or ripped you off, and if you win, you get attorney's fees. Believe it or not, there was not a law like that. Well. He advocated for it. And so to specifically answer your question, advocate for legalized cannabis. And then when you win the election, you say, well, it must have been something I said. You'll be invited as the first witness uh, before the appropriate Senate committee when the bill gets filed. And you can lead by example. John Hill did the same thing. He testified before the Senate Business Commerce Committee. And voila, in 73 was born the Deceptive Trade Practices Act because he advocated for it uh, and he was the number one witness. So. You know, that's political power.
0: Wanted to take a little turn before we get ready to ask you another question before we go into our first sponsor break. Um, You've mentioned about supporting cities, counties and school districts in their local decision making authority that, um, in your view, the Republican Party's declared war on cities and counties because it's outrageous because every Texan lives Texan lives in a city
1: or county. And I wanted you to expand on that. Oh, Jesse, how, how well said. I mean, it's like they're hating on our most our most basic sense of identity. Our hometown, um, what I'm telling people is this used to be a GOP uh, point uh, a, a, and it is conservative. You know, it's the conservative end of federalism, which is local government is the best government. And it, that's just not me saying it. Local government's the best because it's the most responsive. I, I think a very visceral way of examining it is you can have coffee with your mayor, uh, but good luck getting coffee with uh, Greg Abbott. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then we we talk about that. Like, I'm a journalism major, I went from doing engineering to graphic design to journalism. And the big thing that we talked about in one of my ethics law, ethics and media law classes was about community, about community setting the standard and the tone for things rather than the overarching federal government doing so. And that's how we treat speech. And it's like, why aren't we treating a lot of other things with this same community standard?
1: Oh, I like that. Uh, community is a American value, you know, and I mean, it's probably a global value, honestly, but You know, we think of community as a good word. You know, uh, you know, it's like an embrace of a common value system, and and it is easier to benefit from that on a more local level. Um, And and as long as it's not hurting people or clearly illegal, you know, it's okay if there's a little difference in Abilene, Texas, you know, versus Houston, Texas, or Tyler and Brownsville. Let them, you know, be themselves. I tried explaining to my wife; she was she's from Puerto Rico.
0: We lived in Virginia before I got out of the military, coming back to Texas. I was like, Texas is one of the few places where you can run into almost every type of geographic scenarios. That we have mountains, we've got deserts, we've got swamps, we've got plains, we've got hills, we've got beaches. Beach. You you name it, we've probably got it. We've got all these different low climate things going on, and that results in there being different policies needed for those areas. So the, yeah, it's. Obviously, Austin needs something different from Dallas and El Paso needs something greatly different from Houston.
1: And, and the great thing is it's almost like an American thing. It's almost like an American value, um, which is, Hey, you know, if the city happens to be liberal and you like living there, good. If somehow your value system changes and you want to move, well, you can do that too. And Texas is big enough for there to be some transportation like that. Um, and, uh, you know, such is the case where people live in the cities and then they go to the suburbs and sometimes they then go to the country. Um, it is a big state and I like it that way.
0: Well, we're going to go into our first sponsor break here at the Lone Star Collective. This is episode 11. Our guest is Attorney General Candidate Joe Jaworski. I'm Jesse Williams with co-host Austin hurry We'll be right back after this sponsor break. And we're going to be talking about the Delta 8 situation in Texas. City Cross Lake a- You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit texascannaco.com. That's txcanaco.com dot And click the contact tab.
2: Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective podcast. Distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Austin Sam Hariri.
0: the lone star collective i'm your host jesse williams here with co-host austin Zam hariri our guest this week attorney general candidate 2021 tour he's got going on right now joe jaworski how you doing joe hey jesse how are you i'm doing good i I notice you're enjoying the little music selection we've got going on
1: yeah yeah no it brings me back i mean i think chicago was one of the first concerts i ever saw like when i was 12 real quick before we
2: uh jump into some serious more serious conversation joe can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from specifically within texas
1: oh yeah absolutely uh so i was born in houston texas and uh lived most of my young life there uh finishing school uh in england uh at at a wonderful american school there And then uh, came back and did a freshman year of college, living with my grandfather, Leon Jaworski. So that was a great experience. And and my grandmother, Jeanette Jaworski, uh, went to Davidson College, got my uh, college degree in Spanish literature, uh, was accepted to University of Texas Law School, but said, "Now I got a better idea. Uh, During college, we had met REM right when they were getting started. And since I'm a drummer, uh, I went and got in a rock band for four years. And toured the country and put out a record or two, uh, one of which is now on iTunes. So y'all check out other bright colors. Yeah. I mean, you know, we broke up before CDs were even commercially available. But in a masterpiece of resuscitation, this band now is alive (laughs) on iTunes and Amazon um, and uh, Spotify. So um, became an attorney in 91, uh, met my wife at UT Law School, Austin, Texas. And uh, I've been trying to move back ever since. Right. Um, Practiced uh, trial law ever since and uh, served as a city councilman, mayor pro tem and then mayor of Galveston, Texas, and have been uh, serving uh, the state as a lawyer uh, and the people within it um, as a trial lawyer and a mediator ever since. But now I'm back in the game because things are getting bad in Texas. And before I age out, Austin and Jesse I intend to have a say about it. I mean, real
2: quick, Galveston, that's a pretty conservative area, correct?
1: Well, it is now, uh, Galveston County, but Galveston Island's always been, you know, like where the pirates live, you know? And uh, <laughs> no, it's like Jean Lafitte. And, you know, uh, it was it was always, you know, the, the where the down at the Balinese, you know, as ZZ Top would sing. I mean, you know, it was, they call it the free state of Galveston. So it was always very liberal. Now, Galveston County's, Pretty conservative now, thanks to League City and Friendswood. But you know, give it ten years, we'll see. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it, I ran for state senate out of the Galveston district, Senate District Eleven, and you know that that is a, a graveyard for Democrats right now in terms of that gerrymander. But there is a, a growing uh, movement in Galveston, and the Democrats are, are ascendant. So we're gonna we're gonna start moving forward with what we. We talked about
0: right before we hit the break, um, and I had talked with you shortly on the phone beforehand about the Delta-8 situation in this state. And as a refresher, our state, during the legislative session, had a bill put forward where several bills were this, what's called an isomer, which means that it's a, a different form, I guess is an, an easier way to say it, of Delta-9. That's what Delta-8 is. They tried putting this on several bills to completely eliminate this. And the language itself, long story short, got got so messy that nobody wanted to accept it anymore. Uh, From my understanding, Representative King was pretty much what he said at Lucky Leaf in Dallas was, we had a good bill, everybody agreed on it, and they kept trying to change it, and I just wasn't going to go for that. Why would we kill a bill that the entire industry is very happy with? But they tried doing this Delta 8 item. Um, During the legislative session, a committee hearing in the Senate, DSHS, testified that it was their belief that this substance delta eight according to them was illegal and stilled in the controlled substances list here about a week or so ago a group posted up online saying well understand dshs has said this is illegal um it's a forewarning to our members you don't want to get in trouble for this and it seemed to prompt a full response because dshs told a business journal the same thing they reiterated the same quote they then put up on their own website And they're frequently asked questions that this substance to them was illegal and that they had no regulatory authority over controlled substances in Texas. So running for attorney general, my understanding is that you would be one to say if you did take office, it would be your group that would represent DSHS in a possible lawsuit if groups came up with this.
1: We want to gather your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, this this is certainly part of the attorney general office's job, which is to represent the state when sued, you know, let me say that I'm obviously an advocate for legalization of recreational cannabis, which would moot this entire question, you know, should the legislature see the light? Um, I think that what is happening here is business had been relying upon a very clear bill, um, uh, is now being told something different, and and there should be a lawsuit about it, or at least the request for an attorney general opinion. Now, it would be interesting if the attorney general were asked a question, you know, unless it is specifically outlawed, can, you know, a, a division, uh, you know, interpret uh, or or set forth a regulation, you know, that they've not been asked to set forth? Um, because apparently it is this statement on the website, which has now alarmed everybody and sent everyone yes, into a fervor. Yes. Um, and I understand, you know, um, why the industry can't accept this because people have made a lot of business decisions uh, based on one understanding only to find out now that it's illegal. So it it would be interesting to have to defend this. Now, remember, on any um, position that the attorney general's office is asked to defend, it is the office's responsibility first to be a candid attorney you know and sometimes lawsuits are good lawsuits in other words you know sometimes the right defense position to take is you're right we'll fix this you know i mean for example texas has been sued left and right over um the horrible abuse and now contempt of court involving foster children uh, you know, what's the right answer? Well, it's OK. You know, we didn't do anything wrong. Or should an appropriate general counsel do something to settle the matter? You know, uh, so, you know, I would say that if there's a misunderstanding in the law, you know, perhaps the attorney general ought to tell the governor to call uh, a special session, for example, and fix it or, you know, have a word with DSHS and say you need to be a little more specific in your findings here Um and perhaps an attorney general opinion, if requested, could settle the matter.
0: Yeah, from my understanding, the, the big comparison has been that we passed this bill in 2019 for Texas, that it was saying hemp, any of its derivatives, and this derivative that's being converted from, our listeners know, from CBD to Delta-8, but basically they've put it through a chemical process, that what they've extracted out, to change it into another chemical and it's considered a derivative. And some people arguing, well, no, that's a synthetic. And synthetics have their own legal language to it. But the state said if anything that comes from hemp, we're fine with that. And synthetic language gets weird because CBD isolate would technically be synthetic. Um, making hemp wood would be a synthetic. And people are pointing to that going, well, you told us that's okay. Like you said, they were under the presumption this was legal. And I imagine there's hundreds of millions of dollars in personal revenue and probably millions of dollars in tax revenue, the state's getting from this, that's just going to vanish. If the state just goes, well, it's how we want to do things just on a yeah. whim.
1: Well, that's right, Jesse. And, and that is exactly right. And You're so right. it's not, it's not about, you know, it's not about good government anymore. It's about sort of keeping a position of uh, a, a, a overly conservative <laughs> position that is completely out of the mainstream and, you know, it sounds like it's almost one or two people that are forcing this position. I mean, you'll recall Dan Patrick is the sort of guy who can call and have a speaker yanked from the Bob Bullock Museum. You remember the Forget the Alamo book? Yes, I, I heard about that. Apparently, he's, you know, an ex-officio on the board of the Bullock Museum or something. And, you know, he just because it offended his sensibilities, made sure that that event was canceled. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he he might be the kind of guy that uh, or someone like him, you know, if, if not exactly Dan Patrick, who would simply call the leadership at DHS a uh, DSHS and say, you know, you're going to fix this and here's how you're going to do it. Um, that's no way to run a government. That's authoritarianism. I
0: can personally attest. I can personally attest that when I was a Texas State student working for the the wonderful KTSW radio station there, that we were advised is like watch your mouth when you talk about the government officials in this state, specifically your governor, because the governor has line item veto power, and if you do something that steps on that person's toes. They could line-item veto this college's budget. Just and say, "Hey, well, we'll give them your but, we'll give you the budget when you decide to reprimand this student for exercising their free speech rights on campus because we didn't like it."
1: Yeah, that is not freedom. <laughs> you know, that no. is tyranny. That is tyranny, and uh, it's it's bullying. Um, and we see that a lot. Uh, no, I was
2: going to just reiterate that we, <laughs> in the cannabis space, from a legislative standpoint we were all too familiar with the lieutenant governor's tactics and the way he likes to play politics um you know for two legislative sessions in a row we've had very solid legislation make it to the senate with overwhelming majority support supermajority support from the house only to either get stalled or outright shut down by our current lieutenant governor and um I'll be honest, I, I'm not quite sure if I really want to hear from our current attorney general on any of this, considering
1: his legal troubles in the past, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know that- Oh, Austin, you're you're so right. And, you know, I mean, he's he's a team player if there ever was one for the uber conservative movement. And um, I don't know that he exercises a whole lot of independent thought. He uh, he kind of follows the leader, you know, for example, the uh Frivolous lawsuit that got laughed out of the Supreme Court. He didn't write that, um, but he had the lack of integrity to adopt it uh, after several southern state attorneys general had declined to do so. Uh, It was kind of a gadfly think tank uh, production to please Trump. And they finally found a willing participant. I mean. Ken Paxton didn't ask my permission to file it. Did he ask yours? I don't think he asked anyone's permission. He just did it uh, because he wanted to raise some money. Um, I outraised him, actually, uh, between uh, July 1st, 2020 and December 31st, 2020. And you would think a guy like him who's an incumbent, knowing that he's got a competitor hot on his heels, with the legislative deadline looming, would have raised more money. But he didn't. And the only way he got close was during the four day existence of that frivolous lawsuit he filed, Uh, Trump and he sent out one of those emails, you know, all hands to the wheel, you know, shoulder to the pump, you know, uh, save our democracy emails. And he raised one hundred and fifty thousand dollars overnight from small dollar donations because he was saving democracy. So, yeah, I don't want to hear what he has to say on this. Um, He He just today announced a a voter integrity unit to police the local elections this November. And, you know, I'm not going to have Ken Paxton instruct us on integrity. Okay. well, we're going to take a quick sponsor break
0: here at the Lone Star Collective. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. Our guest today is Attorney General Candidate Joe Jaworski. We'll be right back after this break. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit texascannaco.com. That's txcanaco.com and click the contact
2: tab. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Austin Sam Hariri. Hmm. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, I've got a name. I've got a name. Like a singing bird in the croaking toad. I've got a name. I've got a name. And I carry it with me like my daddy did.
0: Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, with co host, Austin Zamhariri. Our guest today is Attorney General candidate Joe Jaworski. Welcome back, everybody. Hello, hello. So, we were, when we left off, we were discussing about election integrity, which to me, the, the concern that I started realizing this last like week or so with this type of thing, and it, it goes with what you were saying, is that if we have people who start messing with the vote on a government level, and you have people who are wanting to vote for candidates that want to change these laws, How do we be sure that, like you you mentioned, with somebody like Ken Paxton, who's running, that these people, their voice is going to get heard. And it's not just going to be the same old, same old insurement that the same people get put back in office.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I just I just think government needs to get back into the business of serving the public good rather than enforcing an ideology. Um, and, you know, if you don't like it, you can leave. That's, that's kind of the way it feels right now in Texas government. You know, if you don't like it, why don't you move, you know, and, and Texas has never been that way. Uh, It's a friendship state and it's a state of possibilities and opportunity. And it's always been very business friendly. And, you know, here we have a, a federal act that, you know, defined hemp a certain way and created an opportunity for rural Texas of all, of all, you know, traditional values. And, um, you know, maybe that's the answer, Jesse, is that, you know, a lawsuit brought ought to, you know, claim that, you know, the federal understanding takes precedence here, you know, um, that hemp and its derivatives are legal, you know. Um,
0: And and I'm of the position that because of the federal law says it as well, that if the state wants to legally go through the legislature and adopt a position where they say, hey, we're going to get rid of this substance, or we're going to get rid of this other item that the federal government said we could do, which our hemp bill said it said um, the states could come up with their own plans and they could run these as AC fit as long as it, inter- it didn't interfere with pretty much, you could say, the, the framework of what they had put up. And it's like, OK, they gave us the permission to do so. And if the state wants to go ahead and legislatively ban Delta 8, the legislature can do that. I doubt the people as a whole want that, though.
1: Well, and again, you know, it's it's, um, I've spoken to police chiefs around the state and, you know, where most of the population lives, um, the cities, the practice has been essentially to decriminalize uh, possession of recreational amounts. And by that, I mean, two ounces or less, which, you know, (laughs) to my way of thinking is a lot. But, you know, it's like. Maybe you go to the grocery store and buy a whole bunch of food, you know, for two weeks. Okay, well, you know, you don't want to just have to keep going out and buying something if you can buy, you know, a, a tidy sum of it. So I think that's where two ounces comes from, I guess. Uh, and um, my point is, uh, if that's the way the majority of the population is living under a regime like that, the Texas government needs to catch up. Um, uh, these these laws appear to be uh, more written and the enforcement in this case by DSHS is more like um, appealing to some sort of base ideology, you know, and uh, I doubt very much that anyone who subscribes to that is the majority. <laughs> it's like, it's like a really vociferous minority. And uh, again, Texas government needs to catch up and get with the program.
2: You know, I'm real curious because uh, you may have heard that uh, the new statistics show that the greatest amount of growth happening in the state of Texas comes from minority communities, and yet when we see this new re- the new redistricting lines, uh, we see that it has actually decreased the access, the vote access of eligible voters of those in the minority community, and actually increased uh anglo-americans in texas their vote uh when we see there's actually kind of a dichotomy when it comes to the statistics out there and how would you approach this whole redistricting mess which really is decades old this is not anything new to this particular redistricting map
1: well you know let me say that that i'm disappointed that uh The House is so partisan. The Senate is so partisan. And apparently, you know, it's legal to consider partisanship and its end goal in in redistricting. And you know, they're they're shamelessly uh, picking their voters so they sustain or have better chances of sustaining a Republican majority versus the way it really ought to be, which is the voters pick their servants. So I I know what's going on and. You know, there's there's um, there's laws they've become uh, less helpful. You know, uh, Shelby, the United States Supreme Court case from 2013 gets rid of the Section five of the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, Supreme Court finds that you can actually gerrymander and, you know, it's okay to do it with a partisan goal. But here's here's what we know uh, that in the last 10 years, which is. The decennial census, 4 million uh, people came to Texas or were born here. That's the population growth in the last 10 years. And remarkably, 95% of that 4 million growth are people of color. And remarkably, in this redistricting, people of color achieve less representation. There will be less districts than there were yesterday, you know, or a year ago that have percentages of people of color uh, that would be compared to a 95% increase, my God, you know, what is going on here? It's so transparent. So to answer your question, Austin, that redistricting litigation is probably going to last through the election. And, you know, if it's still going on and, you know, let's say it's in the United States Supreme court and I take the oath of office. Well, you know, there's a new sheriff in town and, you know, I will not prejudge it. uh, Although I'll be able to read the pleadings just like you and anyone else. So I probably will have an opinion as we get closer to election day, because, you know, it's about a year away. Uh, The primary is less than four months away. And um, what I would say is, is that uh, if it's illegal, if it is a racial gerrymandering, well, that's, that's unconstitutional and it's against the law. And, you know, you'll have a duty of candor as the top attorney in the state to say so, if that's the case. So as we start to
0: end our last segment of the show, I want to ask you a the most open ended thing a host could ever ask in is if there anything that you think we haven't discussed that you would like to discuss and for our listeners to
1: know about you. Well, you know, certainly I, I can direct you to my website and you can see a lot about me. I, I I'd like to seize upon a, a, a story from my time as mayor of Galveston that I think goes beyond partisanship and goes beyond any specific um platform issue. And it's it's I was the first mayor um, elected after Hurricane Ike. And, you know, that was a very damaging storm. And it cost Galveston about 10,000 in population. And we've been working our way back ever since. I mean, that was, what, 13 years ago, almost a little over 13. Well, one thing that happened is, you know, the low income uh, population uh, takes it on the chin a lot more than people with insurance. Um, A lot of people live in their old family homes in Galveston, you know, homes that have have been paid off, you know, before the concept of mortgages were common speak. So these are homes that people have lived in for decades, if not maybe a hundred years, you know, their their families have grown up there. Well, my point to you is when you don't have a mortgage in Texas, you know, there's no obligation that the bank puts on you to have any kind of property insurance. Well, when you're living close to the bone and, you know, you're worrying about food and medicine, you're probably not going to purchase flood insurance. Well, in that instance, a lot of people didn't have flood insurance when Hurricane Ike flooded the island. The point of my story is that when I was elected mayor, housing and urban development had given Galveston a generous grant. I mean, it's beyond a grant. It's $900 million, Jesse, in Austin. It paid for fire stations and wastewater treatment plants, hardening of the infrastructure so that things were raised up. It even paid for close to half a billion dollars to private homeowners. Yeah. Housing and wow. Urban Development gave that because people, what were we going to do? Just die on the vine? They gave money so Galveston could be revived, and the only condition was that Housing and Urban Development insisted that the public housing be restored because the storm basically destroyed it and they bulldozed it. Uh, so it was my job to rebuild it, and and I want you to know this about me that I didn't want to just rebuild apartments because you know that's what became slums and projects. We did something else. We did. Uh, uh, mixed income developments, which means you're going to have doctors and lawyers, nurses and firemen and income eligible people living in beautiful uh, public private properties. And it doesn't look at all like projects. Well, the requirement is you got to triple the number, though, uh, because that's the only way it works. Uh, And when people found out about that, there were some racist overtones and then there were just economic overtones, people that were making a lot of money uh, using old properties for section eight, didn't like the idea that some new kid on the block, uh, mixed income housing was going to be built. Well, they came after me and, and they ran candidates against me, but I knew it was the right thing to do. I made it to a runoff. Uh, they came to me in the middle of the night and said, look, you know, you back off on this plan and we'll take this candidate away. That deal was actually offered to me. I, I said, no way, man, we're doing this. Wow. And uh, it cost me my election, but it was the right thing to do. And now uh, I'm proud to tell you that after three years of federal litigation, I was there at the groundbreaking. I was there at the ribbon cutting, and it is 100% occupancy. Uh, there's Christmas wreaths on the doors at Christmas. There's children trick or treating at Halloween. There's potlucks. There's neighborhoods. There's community, to use that word. Right. So, you know, sometimes you got to r- do right and risk the consequences. And, and that's the kind of candidate and office holder I'll be. I,
0: I thank you for that. Um, personally, I myself have been through a flood living here in Austin. I used to live in a part of town that was right next to what's called Onion Creek. And in 2015, I got hit in the flood and had almost three feet of water come into my home. And I had to fight with the city. I'd been fighting with them for almost a year. And I told them I wasn't going to settle because they were trying to put me in a rental from a home that I was mortgaging out. I had flood insurance and they were telling me, well, we're not going to treat you the same way we treat everybody else on the block about this. I said, well, that sounds like invidious discrimination to me. I'm not I'm not going for that. I got to have a home for my family. And it was a tough fight. And when the flood happened, I managed to get them like pretty much that day to go. We'll buy out your home. We'll pay the difference between it in a similar home. And they wound up moving me to a home in San Marcos, Texas in a home that was roughly like $35,000 more. And they paid the difference between it, but I had to fight for them for a year solid. So I thank you for putting that fight up for people.
1: Amen, brother. Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. Don't give up the fight. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we thank you for you spending your
0: time with us and you, you, giving us this time today. It's very much appreciated. And this will be the it, the end of it for Lone Star Collective podcast, episode 11. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, co-host Austin Samhuri, Our guest today, Joe Jaworski for Attorney General. He's on his 2021 tour. Looking forward to hearing more from you.
1: Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Again, I want everyone to connect with me on social media. All our links are on the website Jaworski4Texas.com. Thanks. Thank you, Joe.
0: Everyone have a great day.